Welcome to Divorce Explained, the podcast where we answer your questions and navigate the process of divorce together. Sharing real stories and personal experiences, this is your guide through it all. With your hosts, family law specialist Steve Benmore and divorce lawyer and strategist Leanne Townsend. So today we're talking about a fairly touchy subject, religion and divorce. And, you know, when I was a child, I was taught certain rules of etiquette, things that you just don't talk about. And you don't talk about religion. You don't talk about marriage, divorce, separation, things like that. So today we're going to actually bring both together and potentially upset a few people along the way. I say that jokingly. I don't really intend to upset anybody, but, but religion and divorce are two taboo subjects. So bringing them together maybe actually cancels one another out on the taboo scale. Maybe. So um, what are we really talking about? Well, first of all, just the subject of divorce and religion um, conjures up multiple different avenues. So let's tackle two today. The two that I'd like to tackle today is the role of um, religion when it comes to a divorcing couple where the parents themselves don't agree on religion or they could be of the same religion but they disagree on the depth or the level of observance of it so that's topic number one topic number two is the subject of religion um, has worked its way into family law with respect to the um, the concept of a religious divorce. So in Jewish uh, religion, we've got the get, which is the religious version of the civil divorce, which allows somebody to remarry. In the Muslim faith, there is the subject of the maher or mer, which is the amount of money that is to be paid when there is a, a breakup in a Muslim couple. So let's go to the first one first. So um, I, I have to say that we are so lucky to live in Canada because the fact that we could litigate religious issues before non-religious judges and receive the respect and the consideration of the concerns and the considerations that uh, apply to those families is just remarkable. And um, I read just recently a case uh, that I actually just posted on my LinkedIn page today, uh, dealing with a young couple from Syria. They were married uh, under Muslim law and, of course, under Ontario law. And, and the subject of their uh, Muslim heritage uh, was, was raised on both topics, both on the divorce side and on the religious uh, application of the tenets vis-a-vis -vis parenting. And so... Um, let, let me just bring you in on this conversation. Have you had any opportunity to be involved in any family law disputes that involved religion? And if so, please tell. Yeah, not um, significantly. I, I find, uh, I guess here in 2023, um, you know, a lot of people uh, don't have uh, as strongly held religious beliefs at times and that maybe, you know, 30 years ago or in my parents' generation, um, 
you know, came up, although there's certainly, I think within certain cultures, the religion is still very strong. Um, the one case that comes to mind for me uh, was that I had a client and his ex-wife was a Jehovah Witness. And so, and he, he was not, but he, during the course of the marriage, um, he had agreed that the two children could be raised in the Jehovah Witness faith. So when they divorced, um, initially he was having some issue with it, but then given, um, you know, the status quo of how the two girls had been brought up and how, you know, they had been brought up in the Jehovah Witness faith. So for him to now, you know, later on when they're, they were, I think at the time of the divorce, they were maybe like eight and 10 or somewhere thereabouts for them to, for him to now be making an issue with it. Um, I advised him, I don't think you're going to be able to um, convince a judge that, you know, their religion should change at this point. There was no, he didn't really have like a a good reason for it. So he ended up <coughs> agreeing um, to continue with that, with the children being raised under that faith. But, you know, it threw up some interesting things, like we were trying to figure out a schedule and it was complicated sometimes because there were certain nights where they were to attend a religious ceremony and, you know, and sometimes it was going to fall on his night and then he didn't want to have to go to the ceremony himself. And it just, it made for a lot more complications and things than um, we otherwise might've had. But at the end of the day, we were able to work something out and everything ended up being settled. So we didn't end up having to get a judge to decide on any of the issues. Right. Um, you know, when I think back on the last 30 years of my experience as a divorce lawyer and litigator and mediator, um, my God, the number of religious cases that I've seen cross my desk. Um, just, just off the top of my mind, we've got racial cases where heritage was a big issue in an interracial couple and the necessity of the child being um, having their, um, their, uh, their racial heritage preserved and, uh, and maintained by the non-racialized spouse. Uh, so that was one example. Another one is Orthodox Jewish families, whereby um, two types of cases in the Orthodox Jewish world, one is Orthodox, the other one isn't, then they split up. And then the other one, they're both Orthodox throughout the marriage, through the birth of the children, and then after divorce, one of them decides to step away from Orthodox Judaism and becomes more liberal, and of course, their rules at home significantly alter so that they're very different than the Orthodox way of living. So that's the Jewish uh, version. And then in the Muslim religion, you've got so many uh, characteristics and considerations with respect to uh, one's way of living, um, going from clothing to food, to religious practices, to fasting. I mean, we're in the middle of Ramadan, and for those of you that are listening, Ramadan Kareem to you, and I wish you a, um, a very uh, safe and um, easy fast during your Ramadan season. Um, but, you know, let me bring it now to the Jewish situation. Not everybody who is an Orthodox Jewish person who splits up lives within a walking distance of their divorced spouse. And in Orthodox families, they don't drive or use any electricity today, for example, if it's past, if, if, if you're Jewish and today is a holy day, uh, the last two days of Passover. And so in that situation, 
um, if it's an eight-day holiday of Passover, um, and the first two days are the holy days, and the last two days are the holy days, or if it's Shavuot, or if it's Yom Kippur, in some cases, the children cannot spend time with the other parent because of the fact that they cannot commute from one home to the other, given that they can't drive. And so religion works its way into these things. And, uh, and I'll tell you, I had a case a couple of years back now, and just quick summary here. In the Jewish faith, much like in the Muslim faith, there are very strict dietary rules. And the belief is that you must avoid certain foods or certain combinations of foods, or if you're gonna eat meat, you've gotta buy meat that is considered and constituted kosher, which is a whole conversation unto itself. The Muslim version of that is halal. And so for the parent of a child who believes strongly in the rules that involve dietary restrictions, for them to know that their child is going to the other home and not following those dietary rules, that's, that's desecrating God's name. And that's sacrilegious. And it's, it's almost like hearing that your child is being fed poison. Um, and it's a severe thing. And so the courts have had to battle that. And I'll tell you, it's not been pleasant because the, the loser in these court debates um, had to go through the whole journey so that they know that they've done everything in their power to ensure that the, the rules, the religious tenets are followed. And if ultimately a judge says, no, the child could eat pork in the other parent's home because this is a family that's split up. And the fact that one parent is Muslim or Orthodox Jewish and doesn't eat pork, but the other parent is not following those religious tenets and eats pork, it's up to the parent to decide what to feed the child when the child is with them. And so the parent that knows that it's wrong or believes that it's wrong for the child to be fed pork has to live with that. And that's a very difficult situation. So, so these, are, these are very tough cases. And, um, and oftentimes one or both parents are very dissatisfied because they, the, the subject of religion, religious conviction, and adherence to the religious tenets is a very strongly held belief, and it's not open to compromise. And yet, when there's a divorce, one of the things that you and I talk about all the time is you're going to have to compromise. You're going to have to meet halfway. It's tough yeah. when it comes to religion. Well, even the the conversation we're having right now when you're talking about the dietary restrictions it it reminds me and this isn't a, a religious issue but people who are vegetarian or vegan and who want to raise their children that way and have very you know some people have very very strong beliefs about eating animals um and you know similarly if the other parent you know decides they're you know want to have the children eating meat it can be a, a very um you know heated uh, debate and uh, very, you know, high conflict divorce over that issue. Um, and it's not even, you and know, a what happens one. if that's the reason they broke up? What yeah, no, that's if one of them decided that eating meat was the murder of animals. 
And that became an issue in the marriage, festered, and ultimately led to an understanding that their views on the world and their, their philosophies were, were so much at odds that they broke up. And they've got two children. And those children go back and forth. And they have two kitchens. And the one that doesn't want the children to contribute to the murder of animals by eating meat or wearing leather is met with a very different set of rules in the other home. Tough case. Yeah. And it's tough for kids to be in the middle of that. I think, you know, if you're going between homes and each home has very strong beliefs in opposing directions, that's very hard for a child. So, you know, as always, these cases should be decided in a child-focused manner. Um, and, you know, creating, creating an environment where there's these extremes. And if the child is made to feel, you know, bad um, about you know, being eating a certain food or being forced to eat a certain food at one of the parents' homes, that's definitely not child focused. So, you know, definitely where people can, where parents can work out an agreement um, with respect to their children, you know, that's going to ultimately in the long run be far better for the children than, you know, whether they're, what, what exactly they're eating. And, and there's not much time left in our IG because I want to go to the next topic, <laughs> but then there's the whole subject of religious education both yeah. at home and in private school. And then within the private school subject matter of, of religion, there's after school, there's Sunday school, then there's full day school. And so that's an issue unto itself. One parent might want the child to go to daytime Islamic school, while the other parent doesn't want the child to go to any religious daily instruction. So that becomes a subject matter. So we'll save that for another day. So. <laughs> Now let's talk about just the actual divorce under religious law. So under Muslim law, we've got Sharia law. Under Jewish law, we've got rabbinic law, which follows halacha. And then the Christian and the Catholic faith have the concept of dissolution of the relationship through an annulment, which is a little confusing for many because the annulment in the Catholic Church is different than the annulment in civil court. Suffice it to say, um, under uh, Catholic rules, my limited understanding is that the dissolution of a marriage under Catholic rules is uh, almost equivalent to the marriage ending ab initio, as though it never did occur initially. Whereas under Jewish law, the get uh, recognizes that the marriage did exist, um, but under Jewish law, for there to be a divorce, and quite frankly, the divorce is needed if you're Orthodox and you want to remarry, both husband and wife, if they want to remarry, they need a rabbinic divorce, which is a get. And for that to happen, the wife has to agree to show up to the Beit Din, the rabbinical tribunal, to receive the divorce. Notice the word receive. And the husband has to show up to the rabbinical court at the same time as the wife in order to stand in front of three rabbis who form the tribunal to give the get the religious divorce. And if they both don't show up, and if he doesn't give, and if she doesn't receive, there's no divorce. And if there's no divorce, any child born out of their remarriage is considered a bastard. 
And quite frankly, they don't remarry because they're not allowed to remarry under Jewish law. And if they're Orthodox Jews, they're likely going to want to date Orthodox people. And the Orthodox people they date will not date them until they get a get. And they won't get a get unless the husband gives the get and the wife receives the get. And there's cases where the wife wants, desperately wants the divorce, the religious divorce in Jewish law called the get. The husband deliberately does not give it because he doesn't want to release his wife. And as a result, she is considered a chained woman. The word in Hebrew is aguna, chained. And she is held by him, even though they're living their separate lives, they're no longer together, but she cannot date, she cannot remarry, she cannot have new children. And then some people don't know this, but there are women that refuse to show up to get the get. And as a result of that, he can't remarry. And so whenever I'm negotiating a divorce settlement for Orthodox Jewish people or for Muslim people, we make that a condition precedent in the contract whereby, for example, the last payment of money or the transfer of the car or something is held until after the religious divorce is granted because we need to have, it's almost like holding back last month's rent. We got to hold something back to make sure they show up to do what needs to be done, whether it's the Muslim faith or the, or the Jewish faith. And so the religious divorce is for many people worth billions of dollars because they can't live their life without it. Yeah, I recently had a case where I had a client who was Persian. And so she was of the Muslim faith and um, she essentially needed uh, not only the Canadian divorce, but she needed a religious divorce. And then she also needed an Iranian divorce. So that was something separate from the religious divorce. And we had a terrible time dealing with her ex-husband uh, in terms of him granting the religious and the Iranian divorce. We, at one point, we managed to get the religious divorce, but then he was playing games with the Iranian divorce. And finally, after multiple court appearances, we were able to, to get an order for it. And he got costs ordered against him for his uh, behavior. Uh, his own lawyer, who he had for a while, even ended up like deciding he didn't want any part of this and, uh, you know, told him he had to either get a new lawyer or represent himself. Um, but it was a lot of work um, that went into like helping her finally get what she wanted. And, you know, she was in a situation similarly to what you were talking about with the Orthodox Jewish um people of Orthodox Jewish faith, like she couldn't remarry, she couldn't date. If she'd gone back to Iran, she would have had problems as well. Uh, and she had family there. So she wanted to be able to go back to Iran. Um, and he was purely doing it out of spite and, and to play games and have power and control over her. Um, and so it was, uh, I, I learned more about uh, Iranian divorces and religious divorces than I ever thought I would know. But one of the challenges I found, and I don't know if you experienced this at all, Steve, with some of these different faiths, I find the judges often, you know, unless they've had a case in, in that particular faith area, they, they don't know either. So I found sometimes we would get in front of a judge and we would have all the materials and the judge didn't really want any part of it. 
um, and was trying to find ways to, you know, pass the buck to, you know, somebody else and not want to get involved. And it was really only finally when we got a judge who had some experience with these and was willing to, you know, really make a, a ruling and get involved that we were able to get the result that we wanted. Yeah, you know, in cases like that, Leanne, I found that what's really helpful is whether it's a case conference or an affidavit or a case conference brief or an affidavit for a motion or a trial, there's an element of education because yes. you don't know who your judge is going to be. You might have a judge that's really familiar with what we're talking about, or you might not. Yeah. And so because you don't know in advance, one of the best things that I've done is I err on on the side of caution and include a little brief synopsis of what the situation is culturally, ethnically, religiously. And then I match that up with Ontario or Canadian law and show them how other judges have dealt with the situation. And I'll provide maybe a, a blurb or a, a passage from a recent case that deals with it in order to ensure that when I appear before them, they at least have had some basic education in the subject matter so that uh, we can engage in a reasonable conversation. Now, remember, I started this whole IG Live with you today saying we could upset some people because it really is a controversial topic. Religion is very much a topic that can offend people if, if something is said the wrong way due to ignorance, due to a lack of knowledge, or due to a strongly held belief that actually doesn't match the listener's view. And for those that have been participating or might watch this or listen to this in the future, I apologize on behalf of Leanne and I if I misquoted the law or if I said or used some language indirectly, unintentionally or deliberately that may have offended you. That was not my intention and please don't, um, don't derive anything um, negative from it. With that said, however, I, I do say this, that um, it, it is a, a very sensitive topic, um, but I'll start, I'll end with how we started. If you had to argue this in a multicultural society, far removed from the religion or the source of the religion, whether that be the Middle East or Iran or Latin America or any other religious countries that are very... Um, that are governed by religious law, like, for example, Israel or Yemen or Libya or Egypt is, um, if you had to choose a country in the Commonwealth, you've chosen a good, good country in Canada to argue your case because you will likely experience honor, respect, and consideration of your concerns on the subject of religion and divorce. And I have been most impressed by our judiciary. And I'll, I'll tell you, the case that I quoted uh, that is on my LinkedIn page today uh, was a case where a woman sued asking for the judge to order the husband to pay her the mar. The mar is the, the amount of money that a husband pays the wife in the event of divorce under Islamic law. In that case, the judge denied the woman the mar. And of course, the headline news is Muslim woman denied Mar in Ontario court. But if you read the case carefully, you'll see that the judge was particularly sensitive to the claim that the woman made. But the judge also did 
the judge's job by, ask, by assessing the law and determining if the correct evidence was there that allowed the judge to grant the woman the money. And the judge did a careful analysis and concluded that the legal test was not, not met. But you can imagine that if you only read the headline, you might be offended by the fact that the Ontario courts didn't recognize the Islamic mark. But that's not what happened because the judge was particularly sensitive to ensure that the T's were crossed and the I's were dotted because that's what we do in Canada. We respect the differing religious tenets and we give proper accord and respect to one's religious um, considerations, tenets and beliefs. So good on Canada because yeah. we do honor people's religious diversity here. For sure. And I think that case is a good example of the importance of getting, um, you know, good legal advice because, you know, making sure that you're putting forward materials that are thorough um, and, um, you know, provide the information that the judge needs in order to make their decision. Because it seemed like when I read that case, it, you know, was a situation of the judge not having certain, you know, maybe expert evidence or material on certain issues that made it so that he or she just could not, you know, rule in, in the, the wife's favor. But had that material been there, it would have been a different result. So if you're in a situation where you're getting, um, you know, a religious divorce, it's very important that you're getting good legal advice about what you need in order to, to save yourself time and fees down the road to have it done properly. Absolutely. Great topic. And uh, as usual, it's a joy speaking with you about it, Leanne. Likewise. Thanks so much. And thanks everyone for joining us. We'll see you here again next week. You got it. Bye for now. Bye everyone. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Divorce Explained. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to head on over to Instagram and follow at Steve Benmore and at Leanne Townsend Life for more. And if you're looking for specific divorce services, you can visit benmore.com and leannetownsend.ca. We hope today's episode made you feel informed and inspired as you move along through your divorce journey. Tune in next week for Divorce Explained.